This is the Movie Theater Butter Podcast, where we talk about stories made into movies and what was modified for the big screen. As a warning, this episode will discuss the plot of both the movie and its original source material, so be ready for spoilers. I'm your host, Kim Labick, and I hope you enjoy the show. All right, so let's jump in. Today we are joined by the one, the only, Anna Young. Hello, Kim. Hello, and welcome back. Uh, it's yes, been thank you. quite some time, as Anna already knows, because I just had a whole moment of being like, oh, I don't even remember how to like talk or say a sentence <laughs> or do a podcast. So bear with me. It's been a minute. We're going to kind of get back into it slowly, but we have a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking about the movie Blonde, the Netflix adaptation of the Joyce Carol Oates book, also called Blonde. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot to get into. There is. Yeah. I don't even, I honestly don't even know where to begin. And I was going to kind of go through some of the history of this, but, you know, it's it's about Marilyn Monroe, right? I'm going to kind of shorthand this part because I think we're all pretty familiar with Marilyn Monroe and we're going to just kind of like dive into a lot in this podcast about Norma Jean herself and sort of the background of her entire life story, not just her career, but personal life, all of it. Let's do it. apart from, of course, the actual movie Blonde by, I'm sorry, apart from the book Blonde by Joyce Carol Oates uh, and the adaptation, the Netflix adaptation we're talking about, there's at least 16 films about Norma Jean and significantly more books. There's also, I just found this out recently, there's also an earlier adaptation of the Joyce Carol Oates book, also called Blonde. Yeah, which is like, and it's so weird because I feel like so many people... I have been talking about this film lately and I, I just had no idea that there was another adaptation. Like nothing in the articles yeah. or conversation Same. was like, oh, this was done before. Even this specific book was done before. Right. Which is crazy. But there is. There's another movie. It was, I think, 2001 or 2002, they said. Right. Because isn't the book from the, like 2000? I think the book came out like around the turn of the century. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes sense. So it was like, all right, book movie done and then 2022 rolled around and fucking andrew dominic was like let's do it again but this time worse well and i think too wasn't this movie in like development hell for several years i think it was filmed like a few years ago i should know that that should have been part of my homework for this but i had no idea no i will we can chat about that later because there's some interesting tidbits and rumors i've heard about the development hell of this movie too which i think is Notable. But anyway, we can get into that later. Oh, oh, we will. That's neither here nor there. (laughs) We'll just, we're going to be saying, I feel like if you, if you have a drinking game to this podcast, which I want to do at some point, but if there was a drinking game to this podcast, the one for this episode would be every time we shit on Andrew Dominic, take a shot. Because it's going to be a lot. (laughs) Or like every time we make a joke about how many times the movie says daddy. God, yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. So, but anyways, for for a quick second back on that earlier film adaptation of the book uh, that, you know, again, came out in the early 2000s, kind of around when the book actually came out. That movie is actually directed by a woman. So Anna and I were talking Mm -hmm. and we may do a whole separate episode where we talk about that film and then sort of compare and contrast the two different adaptations. Yeah, and I think that would be so interesting because my I have not read the book. But my understanding is, like, the book in itself is equivalently pretty problematic because it's just inherently kind of an interesting take, uh, a, a false take on Marilyn Monroe slash Norma Jean's life. Um, so I would be interested if it was if 
seeing it through a lens of a female director shifted any of that. You yeah. Know? And yeah. the thing is, I feel like I feel like I'm hoping in that kind of way where I'm almost I'm hopeful, but I'm almost looking for the disappointment. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah. that might be just because it's like the the image of Marilyn Monroe and stuff has been so overdone and sort of constantly like warped in a way that is just like right annoying really like is all i can kind of say about that it's we've had so much on her and i feel like it's ironically reflective of the fact that like her stardom and everything was so difficult and problematic and it's like we're just continuing that more instead of actually being like okay that happened let's kind of leave it alone have you seen um, my week with Marilyn? No. The uh, Michelle Williams is Marilyn Monroe in the movie. Ooh. It's good, and I think is a much more interesting portrait. I think it's came out in the mid two twenty tens. I'm guessing it's like a twenty fifteen movie. Okay. Um, but just like a much more interesting because it's only it takes place within a, within a week of when Marilyn Monroe was filming The Prince and the Showgirl, which is a movie with um oh my gosh I cannot remember his name I'm blanking but uh. Another famous actor from the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like a week in time and is a much more interesting portrayal of her, I think. But uh, that's also kind of like a separate conversation. It's just like how many times Roman Rowe has been in movies or portrayed in movies. Too much. And too much. It's just, it's crazy. And it's interesting to me too, because there's so many super famous iconic celebrities from that period in Hollywood. And like, we fixate so much on Mar- Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. And like, why? Which I think... This movie is attempting to answer the why, but doesn't do a very good job of answering the why. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> if I had to say in like in like very plain words, this film definitely asks the question why, but in a way where it's more like why instead of like actually yes. Yes. coming up with some form of answer, it's just being like let yes. me ask the question again in cooler mm-hmm. ways. And like that doesn't <laughs> you're doing nothing to actually help the story. You're just right. like Right. I don't know, doing cool shots every now and then. Also, Lawrence Olivier, that was the actor I couldn't remember. Lawrence L- oh, yeah, 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 okay. Yes, that was the movie she couldn't, She was with uh, Prince of the Showgirl. Anyway. Hell yeah. Anyways, um, yeah, so I did ask you to come with a favorite quote. So, yes. do you have a favorite quote? Do you want to tell me I some mean, more? I mean, listen, I want to preface it, I hate this movie. Yeah. I don't have anything favorite about this. I hate this movie. Good. Um, the one I picked was in reference to the daddy drinking game, which was daddy. It's so scary how a scene with actual people just goes on and on. Um, she says that. I think she says that to Joe DiMaggio. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, no, I think she says it to Arthur Miller because she's in reference to how she is kind of like an awkward person in real life, which I think was actually true for Marilyn Monroe. She was much more reserved and quiet when she wasn't on set and working. Um so I actually thought that quote was interesting and, again, goes back to, I think, the question that the movie was attempting to answer, which was, like, the emblematic version of Marilyn Monroe versus her as a person, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of the central theme of the movie. But, um, again, I don't think it was very well executed. But that that was the quote that I selected okay. with the preface that I hate this movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good preface. It's a solid preface. Um, honestly, I would have been, like, shocked to my core if we came into this podcast and you were like you know what i'm gonna defend this movie i would have been like anna we're no. not friends anymore <laughs> it's absolutely over. not <laughs> good i'm glad great because we can just continue to hate on this film it's like yes there's i feel like there's like a couple of, in my in my little notes right my like movie talking point notes that i have here i think there's maybe like two positive things that i have and then the rest of it is just like this sucks this sucks sure. this sucks and it's all yeah. just like 
it's all sort of it's all sort of in the same vein. And like if I had to come up with a big thesis statement, so sort of my thesis statement for uh-huh. this film as a whole, if I'm like a fancy movie critic, I would say the fact that this film is like a disjointed adaptation of its source material literally reflects the fact that its filmmakers follow in Hollywood royalty footsteps of abusing women for personal profit. Yeah, well, and I think it's just like an inherent misunderstanding of what the director thought he was trying to say because he has an inherent misunderstanding of the exploitation of women in media. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, that that was a good thesis statement. <laughs> yeah. They could have started by like not hiring a male director. And this is, you know, I'm going to soften this statement a little bit because obviously there are incredible male directors. There are incredible female directors. There are bad male directors. There are bad female mm-hmm. directors. But when it comes down to it at the end of the day, there are stories that can only be told by certain groups of people. Like, yeah. I, I'm I'm a white woman. Imagine if they were to be like, yeah, Kim, you're going to go direct Black Panther. Like, go, have fun. Absolutely <laughs> like, not. What if I didn't do that? Right. Yeah. Like, right. sure, it sounds fun to do because it's an incredible story and whatever, but, like, I could, I could never do that story justice ever because right. I don't have, you know, as much as I try, I will never have a full understanding and a full proper viewpoint that is needed to be able to tell that kind of story. Well, and um, I think I sent you that, the sight and sound interview that Andrew Dominic did. Yes. Um, and the interviewer asked him, like, why did you want to make this movie? Um, I thought the interviewer, by the way, was brilliant in the questions that she asked him in, in that interview. Because um, she, I think she shares our perspective on the movie. Um, but she asked him, like, why were you interested in this? And he was like, I'm interested in telling a story of somebody who kills themselves. It had nothing to do with the context of her as a person. Ew. And it was about exploiting what he found to be her childhood trauma that led to her killing herself. Um, and that's what compelled him to tell that story. And that's why he was connected with the book. And he said that when writing the screenplay, he just pick and picked and chose random scenes from the book that he pulled into the screenplay. And again, I think it the shows. book itself is inherently problematic. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that there's something deeper. I mean, George, Joyce Carol Oates is a very, um, I don't know if you're very familiar with him or with her. I have not read any of her books, but she's a huge troll on Twitter. Mm. Um, she's just, she's a very interesting person. She's a highly prolific author. I think she's written hundreds of books. Damn. Um, but Blonde is her most famous book. Um, and I think the book in itself is inherently problematic, but it sounds like he just, picked and chose scenes from the book that fed into the theme that he was trying to tell about this person who was mentally ill and trying to kill themselves um, by making decisions based on their trauma. Um, So with that in mind too, it's like, I think he came into this project with a really ill-conceived goal, which is more additionally problematic on the top of the fact that I think he's a man who is not very in touch with telling a story about a woman. Yeah. Because like you said, I think that there are male directors who could have told the story more compassionately. Do I think it should have been directed by a woman? Yes. Mm -hmm. But there's definitely men who could have told this more compassionately. This clearly is not a man who (laughs) compassionately told this story. Yeah. So. And it's, it is, it's obvious from the get go. Like I, obviously I watched this film already sort of knowing what people's take on it was. I did have that like negative context, that negative background, if you will. Um, so I did go into it with a little bit of that mindset and that might have affected me. But at the same time, it was like the second this movie started, I was like, red flags abound. Like you already started like, ooh, four by three aspect ratio. I will, I will, 
hold me back for a second. I'm very passionate about aspect ratio. I'm very passionate you about are. everything in film. Thank you. But like this, you so are. this is something that like, like, you know, like a lot of my friends know. Yes. I'm very passionate about aspect ratio because it's how you see the film. And it's, yeah. it's huge and it's important. And there are so many films now that are fucking throwing it in four by three aspect ratio. Why? Literally, if you're any human being watching this film, the film starts up. All you do is you notice that it's in a four by three aspect ratio. You're not feeling anything from it. You're just being like, oh, wow, this is a square movie. Like that is yeah. that's what's going through your head instead of like, you know, oh, I feel sad or oh, I feel confused or whatever the feeling is that like these directors supposedly intend you to think with it. No, all your all people are thinking is like, oh, this is a box. It's stupid yeah. it's pointless i know 99 of the time also justice league fuck the fact that it was in four by three stupid i have not seen justice league and i don't care yeah don't don't see I, it I it's in four care. by three it's stupid um, yeah i don't care um i will say if we're gonna say like the couple nice things that i liked about this movie i thought some of the cinematography was quite good yeah um mm-hmm. i i thought some of it was was very good i thought um some of the work that they did to recreate a lot of the still photos, which is kind of a, another thing I want to discuss. I don't know how familiar you are with all the still photos of Marilyn Monroe that they incorporated into the film. Um, th- like, there's like 50 plus real photos of Marilyn Monroe that they painstakingly recreated. Mm-hmm. Um, from like going to the home in which the photo was taken. Um, like, mm. very... Yes, on like a weird level. They did a good job with it, so I will give them that. Um, and the way that they inserted Ana de Armas into the real footage of the Marilyn Monroe movies, I thought was also very impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will give them credit for that. Like the way they put her in the sun like a hot clip and the Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend scene. Because mm-hmm. um, they that was like, they didn't reshoot the entire scene. They inserted her into those clips. So they did a good job with that. I thought it looked really nice. Oh, yeah. So I will give them some props from the technical side of those things because it was a, a pretty well shot movie. There were some shots that I thought were visually very good. Um, yeah. But that's kind of the only nice thing I have to say about the movie. And I thought Ana de Armas did a good job. Oh, yeah. I Yeah. Ana de Armas was absolutely incredible. Um, she crushed it. There was, there was something I saw online that mentioned that she might have... Like they might have edited her voice even more so in so post. So that was Is that, that was what I was referring to with the development hell oh, yeah. um, rumor mm-hmm. was that. So I think that this was shot like in 2019. Like this was shot like a couple years ago. Okay. And then it was definitely shot before COVID. Like this wasn't like a COVID issue that held it up. And. I, the rumor is that her accent was so bad that they ADR'd the entire movie. Oh. Um, yes. So that is the rumor. And I tried to pay attention while watching the movie to see if it seemed like it was ADR'd or not. And I did not notice. So if they did ADR it, they did a really good job. Um, but that is the rumor, was that she? it was just so off base that she had to go in and work with like a, a coach to get her accent better and then ADR everything. Cause I do think it's her voice. I mean, it's cause her accent kind of comes through still. I think. Yeah. There's like, a, I think there's like two or three moments that I yeah, can pick it out Yeah, but not in like bit. a bad way. I was fine with yeah. it. I mean, the movie itself is kind of a fantasy, you know, I, I didn't, it didn't, it didn't bother me that it wasn't perfect, but um, I did pay attention to that. Cause I had heard that that rumor was part of what was holding up the release of this movie. Fascinating. That would track. Cause I feel like that, that would be, an immense undertaking to do that whole film, mm-hmm. like ADR the whole thing. Well, and I think, 
And I think it's interesting, too, because now I would consider, I mean, I would say in 2022, Anna de Armas is, like, a fairly famous actress. Mm-hmm. I think, like, she's quite famous. I mean, she's been in James Bond. She was in um, Knives Out, obviously, was super successful. I think that really made her really famous. And and Knives Out came out in 2019, which is when she would have been filming this movie. So at the time that she filmed this movie, she wasn't as famous. Mm-hmm. This was coming off of, she had been in Blade Runner 2049, mm-hmm. um, which I think was the first time that I was very, like, conscious of who she was that was like probably the first movie i saw where i knew who anna darmas was yeah like we knew like the Um, name Mm -hmm. right so i think that's also important to keep in mind because i think 2022 anna darmas would not have done this movie um yeah is my guess yeah (laughs) because you do have to ask like why did she do this movie um what why would an actress be compelled by this screenplay is a little beyond me um, yeah. But I also think that a, a less famous actress would be more compelled to do this role. Um, and she did a good job. And she looks strikingly like Marilyn Monroe in some of the scenes. Yeah. Like on a level that it was like kind of crazy. Dude, so yeah. I, I want to give her credit because I think that she, this would have been a very emotionally challenging role, I think. Mm-hmm. And I hope that she was, there were some times where I was like, I hope that they like cared for her on set. Because some of that would have been Agreed. extremely challenging to film. Um, so I hope that that was not like a traumatic shoot for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that she did a really good job. So th- that's my other one nice thing. Yeah. About the movie. Yeah. That's definitely <laughs> a plus. Yeah. Yeah. And also kind of on the same ish topic and back to what you're talking about, about, um, them being able to like scene copy is the word that I want to use. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So do you remember, did you take the same class that I did? I think it was. Oh God, I think it was Troy's class where we had to do like a, like a scene copy. Yes. I hate Troy's <laughs> class, but yes. Okay. But, I don't want to talk about him. So that's sure. why I like, I do agree with your point about the fact that them being able to so clearly and almost perfectly like copy those iconic moments is impressive. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, I think back to when we had that scene copy assignment in class and yeah. seeing how like pretty close we were as like you know little nobodies in college yeah. using like a sony nex 50 and i'm like did like a pretty good job <laughs> yeah i was like we did like a pretty good job back well, then so eh. and what i think is particularly interesting about the way that they did this in the movie is they miscontextualize a lot of what's happening in the recreation of these images yes. like there's a scene where there's like a very famous photo of her and joe dimaggio sitting on like a like a bench in front of a window and that's in the movie. Um, and it's, it, she's kind of like leaning in. I think she's like speaking in his ear and in the movie, it's the scene where they're like in the upstairs of their home and he like, a, like abuses her directly after that yeah. image. And there's no context that that's what happened in real life following that image. So they're recontextualizing what's happening in these photos and it's just blatantly untrue. Um, and I think that that's, a really unproductive way to utilize like historical materials in a film. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but it, it, I mean, there's literally like 50 plus images within the movie that are direct copies of, of photos of Marilyn Monroe. And that's just like, so obviously problematic. I mean, there's, there can be a benefit to doing that a little bit in a film like this with a biopic where you kind of want to, you know, again, maybe show off the fact that like you pay such close attention to things and that, you know, you cast and you you hair and makeup so well that she looks mm-hmm. almost exactly like Marilyn, whatever. But like, I, I just it was it was very clearly overdone. And it's just another obvious example of the fact that like this film, the way that it's shot is so like 
obviously male gazy, obviously objectifying in a way that, again, misses the entire fucking point of what this story well, should be about. Well, and beyond that, this is not at all true. Like, none of the events in the movie are true. Like, she did not have a three-way with Charlie Chaplin Jr. and Edward G. Robinson Jr. That did not happen. Like, they're, they're like, literally just untrue recounts that are factually not represented at all in history. Like, they're making things up, which is in the book. This is how the book is, too. Yeah. It's, it's not real. And I think that is what is most frustrating to me about this movie, is it's just, it's using these images it's like it's using hair and makeup it's using things to make it seem like it's very accurate and then grossly misrepresenting so many situations within this person's life who is a real person that i think that's just very frustrating and i know that there's gonna be a lot of people who watch this movie who don't know very much about marilyn Monroe who will take this to be true yeah well and it's not true okay and yes yes two things on that the first being like you know, all of this, like, fantasy, the fantasy element, the the fictionalization of it all could have easily been used to reflect her distorted sense of identity. You could have had all that fantasy sure. stuff yeah. in relation to her being Marilyn versus had, mm-hmm. like, a much more realistic view and a realistic storyline to her mm-hmm. as Norma Jean. You could have easily yeah. done that, intermingled the two. That would have been a lot better. But, yeah, like you're well, saying, it was just point- all just fictionalized completely, all yeah. fantasy this is not to your point though good. it's like i think my biggest issue with this movie cuz i can handle movies that take things out of context if it's done in an interesting way if they're right. trying to make a point if they're trying to reillustrate something that happened to this person and and drive home a lesson and drive home a message with it cool great but i think what bothered me the most about this movie is there's no character growth for norma jean she, the only emotional experience she gets to have in the entire movie is that she's just sad and in pain yeah. and abused. She does not get to experience joy or pride in her work or there's no demonstration of how hard that she probably worked to get to the point that she did in her career. There is no illustration of her ever feeling cared for, having friends, having people in her corner. Like, that's just not an interesting characterization of somebody when the entire two and a half, how, however many minute runtime of a movie, it's just someone who's sad the whole time. Like, I just personally didn't find that interesting. I didn't think that was a, an interesting portrait of an individual. Yeah, because it's, it's one dimensional, which again is yeah. like the whole, you know, the whole problem. Like, her in reality, she's being portrayed in these, like, 50s, 60s, whatever the fuck movies as, like, being this one-dimensional, like, silly, sexy blonde character. And then this movie does that same exact thing, like you're saying. It's, like, the character of Marilyn slash Norma is just entirely one-dimensional. It's, like, again, miss the point. I felt like she was literally just being, like, ping-ponged through scenes, just endlessly abused, instead of having... Like, she had such little agency as an individual that it was just uninteresting to me. You know what? There's, <laughs> because that's yeah. just not true. Yeah, and there's, there's like, one specific point that I can point to. I think there's, like, two or three, but there's one specific point in this movie that I can point to where she shows a sense of agency, and it's incredibly brief, and it's also, like, so pandering is the word that I want to use. Yeah. It's when she, yeah. she has that phone call about how much she's getting paid the movie 
Yes. And she's like, yes. and she I'm only getting $5,000? That's stupid. Yeah. Fuck that. Whatever. Yeah, she's like, Jane Russell is getting way more than me, which is awesome right. and good for her. And I think that's how she was in real life. She had a real personality and was able to stand up for herself. But that lasted like about two seconds. And then right after that, she gets another phone call where she gets talked down to. And it was like the, so. this might have been the editing, directing, whatever, it, you know, kind of all of the above. But it, that moment, again, was so pandering. It was like they were saying, like, mm-hmm. hey, look, female character with agency. And it was like, then you're not if – you're, if you're giving us, like, a two-second bare minimum nothing and, like, pretending like it's all so important, that's, that doesn't count. Right. Pathetic. Absolutely right. pathetic. Andrew Dominic, be better, please. And don't make this movie. Yes. Go back in time and don't make this movie. <laughs> Just don't make this movie. <sighs> yeah. I want to I wanna go back to sort of the cinematography at large for a second. Sure. Because I coined this term as I was coming up with my notes. And it's probably actually a term somewhere. Or maybe it's not. Whatever. But I want to call the style of this film like it's a pseudo-indie film. And I say that because it's a Netflix movie. It was distributed mm-hmm. by Netflix. I'm mm-hmm. sure that they had a budget going into this film. Oh, yeah. I think it was a pretty big budget. Yeah. And yet, obviously, the cinematography, the Budget was the 22 editing. million. I just looked it up. Yeah. Okay. That's not indie at all. 20, 22 no. million is a solidly funded million. film. I mean, yes. maybe, you know, maybe not so much as like Avengers, but it's a solidly funded film. Yeah. And it has yes. this, again, like I say, like a pseudo indie style to it where it's like <sighs> the four by three aspect ratio. We we flip through um, monochrome versus colored film. All this kind of stuff. And it does look mm-hmm. visually fucking cool. But again, at the same time, it's like the nature of this film. And I do think a little bit on the editing side as well feeds into the fact that it just feels like it's very pandering. Like it's very much saying like, look at us. We're a Sundance film. We're we're an indie film. We're cool. You know? Or maybe that's just me. No, I agree with you. I thought it looked really nice. I think... My issue with it was, I think it ties back into, like, wanting to recreate everything. Like, it's like, this is going to be artsy, and this shot's going to be artsy, and this is going to be cool. It's like, what if you just tried to tell your story? (laughs) You know? It's like, what if you just focused on telling a good story? Have you seen, um, it's another Andrew Dominic movie. Have you seen, um, Jesse, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford? Um, that, that was, like, his previous movie. No, I haven't seen it, but I can picture the poster. Okay, yeah, it's Brad Pitt, um, Casey Affleck, really good movie, very good movie. Kind of does the same thing mm. with the visuals. Like it's like, let me just be really artsy and cool looking. Um, good movie though, and so and that's also interesting because it's a very male movie, and I think that that says a lot about Andrew Dominic as a director and indicates a lot. Um, I mean, I don't think there's any women in that movie, but it's a very male movie. And I think that it's an interesting contrast and an interesting choice to move to a movie like this following that kind of movie. And and that movie's very well done. And that movie, it's really good. It's a really good movie. It's about the assassination of Jesse James. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly it's a director who knows how to tell stories about men. Yeah. And again, does really good visuals. And also that's something that like, as I was going through my notes, I was I was going to kind of uh, shit on the cinematographer a little bit, but because I don't know the full story behind the scenes, I'm more or less going to shit fully on Andrew Dominic because... Oh, no, I fully, yes. Yeah, because it's like, <laughs> you know, 
every director DP pairing works a bit differently. Sometimes you have a pairing where the DP takes full control of the images and is like, this is what's going to be yeah. in the frame, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes you have a director who does that, whatever. You know, it's it's always very different. But that being said, again, as I was going through my notes and I was like going to sort of shit on the consistent objectification and whatever on this film, it was like, to me, it feels like it comes down to Andrew Dominic because it feels like whatever he was saying, he had control of the framing, but the actual cool looks of it, to me, feel like that came from the DP. And so I appreciate the cool looks of it. Yeah. Like we're talking about, like it did look incredible, but the actual framing and the story and everything was largely what was problematic. Right. Right. Yeah. But I will say. Question for you. Oh, no, say what you're going to say. Go um, ahead. I was going to say, I will say there was one shot that I thought was close to being worthwhile. That was this like pullback of the audience watching her Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend scene. Yeah. Like we have that close above her and then it pulls back. And that reminded me of like kind of that scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I want to talk about that movie later. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it kind of reminded me of that in like that was a good moment to show how she's seeing herself. Sure. But also at the same time. Like, this mass of people watching her in such a way that is clearly different from the way that she's watching herself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what's your question? Yeah, I thought... Well, no, and that ties into what I was going to ask you. Um, my question for you was, have you seen Mar- uh, several Marilyn Monroe movies? Like, how many Marilyn Monroe movies have you seen? Um, a grand Are you familiar total with her filmography? of zero. Uh, one, okay. including this one. Okay. So I've seen almost all of Marilyn Monroe's filmography, like her her actual films. I was, I've seen a lot of like golden age Hollywood movies. That was something nice. I was really into as a teenager. I'm very familiar with Marilyn Monroe. And I thought that scene in particular was very interesting because Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend is considered her best role. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, she's phenomenal in that movie. It's an incredible performance. It's one of the best, like for someone with screen presence, it's one of the best moments in cinema history. She's just incredible. She sang that song herself. Um, she, I mean, she's just a performer in that scene. It's an incredible moment in film history. And by all accounts, she was very proud of that movie. And I thought that that scene was interesting because that's not the context that you get in that movie. In Blonde, she seems disappointed in herself. She seems ashamed to be portrayed on screen in that way. Um, and I was frustrated by that scene because of the fact that in real life, that was, that was the height of her career. She was the most famous she had ever been at that point. Um, it allowed her to have a lot more flexibility in the roles that she chose um, because she was so successful in that film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also upped her salary, her ability to, um, you know, expand her brand beyond being just a dumb blonde in movies. She was launched much more beyond that and was able to kind of become the superstar that she became because of that role. Um, so I thought that that was an interesting scene because it just grossly miscontextualized the way that that movie was, the way that she felt about that film from Great. all historic accounts. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Great yeah. job, Andrew Dominic. God yeah. damn it. I was, and I was really and hoping like, that that was going to be, again, on my, on my notes, like that was like one of the two or three that I was like, this is a positive note. And now I'm like, no, it's a negative note. Because now knowing that it's like, again, just, just didn't do it right. Just didn't had no idea how to, like, properly do this movie. Yeah, well, and I think, again, that goes back to the book as well, because I think it's it's just an unfortunate trend in how Marilyn Monroe is consistently portrayed in modern media. You know, she 
by all accounts, um, was not a dumb blonde. She was very careful to make that her public persona. Mm-hmm. And she enjoyed that being... It's it's the separation within the movie of Marilyn versus Norma, right? So I think Norma Jean was, a, was an intelligent, hardworking woman who had demons and had struggles, but was also very driven in her career. And then Marilyn Monroe, she curated to be this sex pot, dumb blonde... And that was all very intentional on her part because she was an intelligent woman yeah. who was, by all accounts, a pretty talented actress. Um, you know, I think people see her as this dumb blonde because that's, she was just so good at it in movies. Mm-hmm. Like, she was actually a really good performer. And if you watch, you know, The Misfits, which is her last fully completed film, um, it, which you should watch that movie. It's, it's very good. Um, and that's very late in her career. Um, she died pretty soon. I think she, she either died right before it was released or right after it was released. Um, and it's, uh, it was written by Arthur Miller, her ex-husband, and it's a very different performance and it's very on the nose about, like, she's clearly very aware. It's, the character is based on her in real life and she's clearly very aware of that characterization. And I think that it, she deserves more credit for her ability to actually perform. And I think that this movie just just fully missed that. Except for, you know, what? there's that one scene where she's doing that monologue audition um, toward the beginning of the movie. Um, I think it's when she's auditioning for Niagara. Um, it's like, the, it's kind of like a close up on in her the, black and in white. In the studio? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and I think that's like the only time that they even bother showing that like she actually could try as an actress um, in the movie. I was going to say, uh, another moment that I can think of that kind of does fit that point that you say as well uh, towards the end when she's starting to get to know the playwright guy who is that's Arthur Miller yeah, yeah. also is that yeah. Adrian Brody I didn't even look it up. is Adrian Brody okay. and he's actually like literally the best Arthur Miller possible and he also was kind of a high point of the movie for me he kind of yeah it. he's an incredible actor too. yeah yeah no he's yeah. okay so that scene that's like one of the first intro scenes to um her and the playwright's relationship is like yeah she's talking to him about this character of Magda right the yeah which becomes yep. a whole thing um and she's like, yeah. I have thoughts. And then she gets into this like really incredible, you know, talk about Magda and that as a ca- Magda as a character and et cetera, et cetera. And then he kind of just like right. pinpoints one little thing out of her sentence and like nitpicks it because it bothers him instead of like actually mm-hmm. listening to what she just said and kind of taking that input. Um, mm-hmm. He sort of nitpicks this one bit. And then you do kind of see her like just briefly like kind of like code switch in a way, right? Where she like went into this thinking like, oh, I can have an intellectual conversation for a second. And then she has yeah. that moment where she's like, oh, he's still not taking me seriously as a person. So she has that like code switch. And then she says something like, oh, well, maybe she just doesn't read. Tee hee hee. And he's like, yeah, maybe yeah. she just doesn't read. Tee hee hee. And then it like goes on yeah. from there. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think. But again, that's something that like, you know, you and I can pinpoint like two quick moments of that in this movie when like that should have been a crucial part of the film. Right. Cause she, she was a, like had a career, like she worked really hard. And I think that this just fully misses the fact that she like, wasn't just a hot mess all the time who just floated through her life and happened to be really famous. Like, I think that's just really unfair and not interesting, just uninteresting to me. And you know, while we're talking about this sort of, 
again, kind of talking about like her distorted sense of identity and how that's not even distorted sense of identity, but yes, distorted sense of identity as a result of the fact that she is constantly doing that code switching, acting in real life, acting in acting. Um, you know the movie Cruella? Yeah. Okay, so regardless of what your views on that actual film are, people are a little one way or the other. I think it was fine. that film shows that concept a lot better than this film. Sure. About just like sure. having, what is it? Alter identity? What's the word? Altered, sent, uh, sent, alter, ego. alter ego. Yeah. About like having an alter ego and how that develops a character and a story. Like Cruella, I think, did yeah. a great job of that. And like, it shouldn't have been a Cruella movie. It should have been like a separate character, but whatever. But like yeah. that film did whatever. it in a much better way than, again, this film in which her her journey with her identity and the way that she uses her identity is again like we're saying such a crucial part of who norma jean slash marilyn monroe is and like yeah how do you i just i want to know i want to know what happened in the pitch meeting that andrew dominic had with these people <laughs> that they were like yes he's the guy for the job he's gonna do it you know what i mean like i bet he just walked in I there just... and was like marilyn monroe right visually striking here i have an idea for you that's visually striking yes. and they were like yeah okay cool yes great shapes you know what i mean yes i oh, think no. that is anna, you froze exact- uh-oh oh no guys anna's anna's oh, no. image on my video chat froze so we're gonna take a quick pause oh, oh you're back la, 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 la. Oh, i think i'm love back it. we love technical difficulties great i don't know what happened i'm just sitting here anyway i'm back um as you were saying we were oh, wait, talking about quick pause just for my sake of mind. Are you still recording? Yes. Yes, I am. Incredible. That did not affect my audacity. Great. I was like, can you imagine if we got like we're halfway good. through and then it cut off? We're good. Uh, we're good. All right. Go um, but as you said, yeah, like in that pitch meeting, I think the pitch was it's going to be pretty. There's going to be a lot of um, it's going to be gratuitous and extreme and that's going to get people to watch it. Yeah. And it's that simple. Which again is part of the problem of actual norma jean and her life you know what i mean like that was such a a part of the problem in hollywood that is clearly still such a problem in hollywood because that's exactly what happened with this film is all that was important was the the shock value and having anna diarmas be topless every 20 minutes kind of thing and it's like that was all that was important to sell the film listen i'll also say this i'm not really generally bothered by gratuitous sex or violence in movies fine whatever i get it life is violent um i honestly just found a lot of this very boring and (laughs) and like her threesome was supposed to be empowering for her it was just boring i thought like the on the nose when she's having an orgasm and it transfers into niagara falls in reference to her being in the movie niagara was just boring and lazy um i i just found it not interesting so it's like all of these things that are supposed to be done for shock value are mostly just very upsetting and not engaging in any way in my opinion yeah yeah kind of like um i know this is a completely different movie and we don't have to go super onto it but have you seen the neon demon i have yes yeah it kind of reminds me of that in the way that again visuals incredible striking also objectifying in the ways that it does the you know the sex and nudity and yeah I'm, I'm gonna pause myself there actually for a second because i also like don't like i don't care about gratuitous sex and nudity in films if it has a fucking purpose 
But there are yeah. so many times right. where it's like, it doesn't have a fucking purpose other than the fact that this movie was clearly written, directed by a dude, cinematography by yeah. a dude. Clearly, like when they have a camera and they have a beautiful woman in front of them, their thoughts are topless. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's, yeah. that kind of shit bothers me. If it actually makes sense to the story, it actually has meaning. Go for it. I will never be bothered by that. But like, yeah, it's fucking obvious that it's unnecessary. Absolutely. Like, what made me uncomfortable was, again, was, like, what I said earlier, like, I hope Ana de Armas felt okay with everything that was happening in that movie. Me too. Because it was just, like, I felt unnecessary for a lot of the film. Yeah. Like, you could have, like, implied some stuff, and it, I would have got it. Like, I can, I can, just give me some cues. I don't need to see everything, you know? Yeah. I don't, <laughs> oh, God. I don't need to see, like, one of your first shots is, like, a really, really long, uh, dolly in or track in on the the photo of the quote-unquote dad on a clearly cracked wall we get it you don't have to hang on that shot for like eight years you can have two seconds of the shot we get it move on you don't have to be like look at this crack in the wall i mean we like literally saw like a cervix like it like zooms into a cervix it's like i get it you know like and i don't need like to it's fine I get it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Horrifying. You yeah. know what else was completely unnecessary in this film? The royalty-free shots of a rotating fetus. Like, yeah. Literally. What? I was like, I would rather you have just bought the licensing to see the giant fetus from 2001. Like, that would have at least been better. <laughs> a thousand percent. You need to edit and why movies, were there, yeah. like Why were there so many cuts to talking fetuses? Feti? fetuses i don't know i was like i don't fetuses i was like i don't i don't need this it was if anything just like kind of silly like really yeah we're just gonna do that especially like especially put side by side with like a film that is clearly meant to look a little bit older right again we have that like black and white at times yeah even the whole thing yeah either it was shot on film or it was meant to look like it was shot on film right and then all of a sudden we shoot to like a clearly cgi like again yeah. royalty free you could have like looked this up on google like rotating fetus it's just not it's just not right <laughs> uh yeah i mm-hmm. another movie i just thought of because you were referencing movies that maybe kind of are in a similar vein to this that i thought of that i thought did a better job have you seen spencer i have oh Kristen Stewart. <gasps> okay uh i think i watched like the first 30 minutes of that and then i couldn't okay but yeah well i I think that it was just, it, it operates in a similar vein in that it it's kind of a bit of a horror movie, right? Like, it's it's about a woman's trauma, and it brings in horror elements and kind of more fantastical elements to tell the story of Princess Diana's trauma. Um, it's also directed by a man, um, but I think it is a much more interesting portrayal of discussing trauma, um, and it, particularly, like, female trauma. Um, you know, it deals with Princess Diana's eating disorder, um, her public persona, her role within the royal family. Um, you know, fame is a similar theme to the theme in Blonde, but it's just told in a much more sensitive way. Um, you don't see, you know, it, it makes you uncomfortable, um, but not in the way that Blonde makes you uncomfortable mm-hmm. because it's actually done effectively. Um so I just think it's a it's an interesting contrast of like how we can tell these stories about these women who are so much part of the zeitgeist still, um, and how you can do it in an interesting and compelling way that isn't 
as exploitative. Um, you know, the end of um, Spencer is much more sensitive, and it doesn't exploit Princess Diana's death. It doesn't exploit um, her pain in such and what I think is an inappropriate way as what Blonde does. So just an I thought of that movie as as I was watching this, and just thought it was much more well done. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's, you know, another thing is these movies both came out around the same time, right? I know mm-hmm. you said that this one, uh, Blonde, was filmed in 2019, but I think Spencer was, there's no way that Spencer was filmed, yeah. like, more than a year different than that, you know? No, yeah, I think it, yeah, super close in time. Yeah, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. I will have to watch that for yeah. sure, like, finish watching that. Yeah, it, I mean, it's not, like, a brilliant movie, but I thought it, it's an interesting comparison to this movie yeah and those two kind of helped me transition to another thing that i want to chat about which is sort of the portrayal of mental illness because i know Mm -hmm. um there's as far as i know there's no formal diagnosis to princess diana but there has been speculation around um about certain mental illnesses she may or may not have had again i'm not Mm -hmm. gonna like try and diagnose somebody especially somebody that i don't even slightly know but on the topic of mental illness and clearly, clearly, Norma Jean has struggles with mental illness, right? Her mental yeah. health, uh, whatever it is, whatever, you know, we, again, we don't have a formal diagnosis, but just like the way that the way that this film portrays mental illness really bad. And we kind of touched on it with just like Norma Jean's character in general. But I kind of want to talk about for a second some of the littler side stuff with like her mom and the insane yeah. asylum and how that is treated, yeah. because like. We come in and, again, the initial red flags of this film, right? The first time that we meet her mom and some of the first scenes we have of her mom, she's acting what I would call just, like, clearly crazy, right? I don't like that word, but, like, clearly crazy. Like, somebody wrote this and was like, let's just say that she... I don't... Like, they pulled, like, actions and dialogue out of a hat and threw it together and were like, that's crazy, right? Instead of, like, actually taking five fucking minutes to, like, Google something and be like, oh, she might have had this, so let's reflect it by this as, like, a template. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, again, I think this is, like, it's so much more interesting to see someone with a more thoughtful portrayal of something rather than just being, like, I'm just going to throw some shit at a wall and see what sticks so I can just be like, she's crazy. Like, that's not interesting to me. Exactly. That's lazy. Exactly. And then you have no real concept of her mom and so then every time we have a scene with her mom involved in it it's like i don't i don't really feel anything other than like oh i guess she's like in pain because this was difficult but i also like you have no way to like see that she grows from understanding it a little bit more you know and i feel like that's something we all kind of go through my thing too was like her mom was just so one note awful and crazy it's like, why, why would she want to visit her at the asylum or at the hospital? Why, like, w- like, what is the relationship there? Like, there shouldn't be a relationship there because you haven't given me anything to sympathize with this character. She's just abusive. Yeah. You know, like, I think, I think it's not, it's just, again, not compelling because all you see is the trauma. You don't see the part that's actually, like, a bond that she shares with her mother. Yeah, and you know another kind of like media comparison. Have you seen uh, the Queen's Gambit? Yes. Okay, of great. So that has what I think is, in my opinion, one of the best modern examples of like a a difficult mother daughter relationship 
in like a really great way. You see the difficulty and you do see like the bond at the same time. And it's like, again, that's a really great example. This film, Blonde 2022, not a great example. Yeah. Like this movie in so many ways feels like it should have been made in like 1994. Like why does, why did this, why does this exist in 2022? I don't need this to be a thing in 2022. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's like, I wish that I could have been at the pitch meeting. Like I, I want to know what went down there. I want to know what people helped keep this story afloat and what people yeah. tried to like fix it and like what stopped it. You know what I mean? Like I wish I could know the full yeah the full picture of like everybody involved in the process to be able to be like, Oh, I see where it's like these five people who suck kept it afloat or it's like whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. But we will never know. Or we could like just (laughs) sneak around and find out. Um, Another, (laughs) this is like a kind of random, but another like movie slight comparison. Um, It's not even really a comparison, but it's just something I was thinking about as I was watching this. That whole, the whole storyline with like the letters from Norma Jean's dad, right? Which of course we come to find out are faked by the the threesome guys. I'm going to call them. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I don't remember their names, but. Charlie Chaplin Jr. and Edward G. Robinson Jr. Thank you. Who are both real people who Marilyn Monroe knew, but did not have a romantic relationship with, and particularly did not have a three-way relationship with. Yeah, thank you. Again, good to note that, like, again, remember, (laughs) that part is clearly incorrect. Historically incorrect. Um, But yeah, but that's a whole part, that storyline with, like, the fake letters from her dad and then finding it out later. Yeah. Uh, Weirdly enough, reminded me of, like, Dear Evan Hansen. Oh my god, I have not seen that movie. Did you watch that movie? I did. I saw it in theaters like a fool. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it's troublesome. But in that kind of way that like I felt like in this film Blonde, that storyline with the letters could have just been portrayed better. And again, like you're saying, it's totally false to begin with. But let's say for a second that there's some reality to it. Sure. If yeah. there's some reality yeah. to it, there's a much better way of portraying that. And I do think... To also um, make the characters more dynamic, it would have made sense to have um, either of those junior guys, like, go at it from some sort of sense of, like, they think they're doing the right thing. Kind of in a Dear Evan Henson, right? right? Where he thinks he's yeah. doing the right thing. And then it just right. spirals. Right, it didn't even, like, come from a good place. Yeah. It's, yeah. It just happened. Which, is, which was also, like, weird to me, because to me, that was, like, the only joyful part of the movie was her relationship with them and then it just like gets weird and fizzles out in like a lame bad way it was all weird that was weird to me it was supposed to be like her sexual awakening what allows her to become the sex pot that she becomes in the public eye but i just thought it was like the weirdest way to portray that in the movie i was like what is this yeah 100 (laughs) percent um okay so one other thing that i did want to mention Okay, let's talk about a good positive thing for a second. Because again, we're ripping into this whole movie. And also, we we technically haven't talked a lot about like the adaptation factor. But like, we started off by saying this is just a really bad adaptation anyways. Like it it took the source material of the book and warped it. And the book took the source material of, you know, actual reality and warped it. So it's like, it's, it's hard. This is one of those things that the adaptation factor is bad. And at every part, you know? Yeah. Um, but again, so one kind of positive thing about this film, to lighten the mood for a second, 
Um, I actually really dug the part where Norma Jean spies the typewriter, uh, the playwright's typewriter, Mm. and she sees Uh like the exact flashback dialogue of her asking him not to write about her. I thought that like the meta part of that and the way that they edited that footage together, I thought that was really cool and well done. Well, and that is actually kind of true. So Arthur Miller famously wrote... um, multiple plays that were not even thinly veiled reflections of Marilyn Monroe's real life. Um, There's a play that he wrote that I believe was premiered after she had died, um, where it's literally just a woman who's nude in bed for the entire play. And it's, and it's the character is Marilyn Monroe, um, basically. Um, And he had written several other works that were just completely about their relationship, um, which was fraught um, as it is in the movie. Um, so I thought that that was actually interesting because that is real. That is true. They He wrote about her and created very famous works about her. Um, Arthur Miller wrote The Crucible, which is probably what most people like in the 21st century are familiar yeah. with. Um, that was, he, that wrote, was he wrote, whoa, okay. I yeah, feel like no, I did uh, make Arthur that connection. Miller is a very talent, was a very talented playwright. Um, hmm. And was it was a very uh, interesting relationship at the time. Obviously, like one of the most famous actresses in the world falling in love with one of those famous playwrights in the world who's considered very serious and very scholarly. Um, so it, it it was also a very interesting relationship of with her coming off of her relationship with Joe DiMaggio, which is also in the mm-hmm. film, um, which that, to my understanding, was actually fairly accurate as well. He was just an abusive asshole um, who took advantage of her. Um, but I also think that he loved her deeply. So I think that was also an issue within the movie. Again, it's just all very one note. Like every yeah. relationship is much more complex than... It is in the film. But yes, I think that's a good point because that actually is, there's a nugget of truth to that okay. scene. Good. So. Good to know. I mean, not good in real life, but like good to know that that's no, like one yeah. of the more accurate aspects of this film. Right. Yeah. Nice. Um, ugh, let me clear my throat. There are times when I just like talk so much and either my throat gets really dry or it gets like really like moist. I get like, it. Ugh. Yes. Not fun either I get way. Um, yeah. Okay, so I know we mentioned Once Upon a Time in Hollywood earlier, but I want to bring yes. it back for a second because kind of like you're saying, I I know you mentioned that there's uh, that whole Arthur Arthur Miller story where a woman's like pretty much just laying in a bed the whole time. Do you mm-hmm. remember that scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that there's just this like obnoxiously objectifying long shot of Margot Robbie laying in bed? Yeah. Yes. Um, I don't like the film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and eventually we'll talk about that more on the podcast, but that was one of the moments I really disliked. And it, again, with, like, the golden age of Hollywood and just, like, men completely fucking missing the point of everything that was wrong and demented about the golden age of Hollywood. You know? Like, Mm -hmm. that shot in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that shot is gratuitous and completely unnecessary. It gives us nothing truly important to the story. Mm-hmm. And it only serves to objectify Margot Robbie and that character. And it's like, yeah. that was what was wrong with the golden age of Hollywood. How do you not have any creative juices to like make an actual commentary on it instead of just copying the bad stuff, you know? Well, and I think an interesting point about that is I don't think there's anything wrong with taking advantage of beautiful people on screen. That is the magic of movies, right? Everyone likes yeah. looking at beautiful people in movies. Obviously, Margot Robbie's a beautiful mm-hmm. human being. So happy for her. She's so pretty. 
But, like, contrast that with, like, how Greta Gerwig portrays, like, Saoirse Ronan in her movies. Saoirse Ronan is beautiful. Greta Gerwig has said in interviews several times that she is just, like, transfixed by how beautiful Saoirse Ronan is. And she takes advantage of that in her movies, right? And, And will shoot her... Especially, like, in Little Women, I think, makes her look very beautiful, but in a way that doesn't feel exploitative. Yeah, in a way that furthers the story that makes the moment important, rather than just being like, hey, guys, let's pause anything important to the actual story, and let me just show you what is basically well-shot pornography, you know? Right, and I... And... Or, like, you could even, I mean, I don't I don't even think, like, every male director does this. Like, if, if you've sure, ever watched, right. like, an Ingmar Bergman movie, there's some, like, really fantastic, like, he clearly shoots Ingrid Bergman in, like, just really incredible mm-hmm. ways. that Because they were married, they made so many incredible movies together, and Ingrid Bergman is one of the most beautiful presences ever to be in any movie. Mm-hmm. And he had an understanding of her beauty and took advantage of that in his films without being disgusting because it was his wife and there was some respect there and they had a, a partnership and were able to make a lot of beautiful movies together. Good. Um, so there's, a, I think, just such a difference, you know, when you think about all that. So I agree with you because I like Once Upon a Time, but that was always my issue with the film is the way that Sharon Tate's character, that character is in the movie, which is an inherent, like, Quentin Tarantino issue yeah. in general. Yeah. Um, uh, and again, it's it's just yeah, crazy I, how how oblivious, or not, not, not oblivious, but it's crazy how that just reflects part of what was so wrong with the golden age of Hollywood is like, all the sexism, yeah. racism, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, well, how are you, you know, when people do sort of like a homage, I think is the word, when you do sort of like mm-hmm. an homage yeah. to the golden age of Hollywood, there's there's such a difference between films like Blonde and films like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that fall into the tropes and feed into the tropes instead of just being like, how do I present this in a unique, creative, argumentative take on the golden age sure. of Hollywood. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like they're just, they're basically just cut and pasting in like a better lit way. Yeah. Than like doing anything actually new and important. <laughs> right. Problematic. Constantly problematic. <laughs> Ugh. Another like thesis statement that I kind of have. And we'll, we'll sort of get into wrapping this up because I realize now we've hit like an hour. We've, cu- we've hit our, yeah. we've hit our little timeline. I want to have like a little like ding, our time is up. Um, <laughs> but another like large thesis statement that I have on this, and I want to get your take on it, but I feel like another big thing that this whole story misses is this, this film kind of portrays it as Marilyn is ulti- Marilyn slash Norma is ultimately looking for, for love and for a father figure. Right. Yeah. And I, I, get that and i think that that is part of the story for sure i feel like all of that is a symptom of her truly needing safety i feel like that's what the core of it is is she needs safety and she needs grounding yeah because like if you're if you're familiar with maslow's hierarchy of needs at all okay great yes okay so for for the listeners out there give it a google self-actualization self-actualization right up at the top (laughs) and it's like so Maslow's hierarchy of needs, basically it says, like, as a human, what do you baseline need? And if all of those needs are met, what do you need next, et cetera, et cetera, up until you get to the point yes. where everything else is good and you just want to feel like you're doing something positive for the world. Like, that's, like, yeah. the the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. But go all the way to the down, go all the way down that pyramid and, like, 
one of the one of the baseline things that you need as a human is safety. And so again, like this film, Blonde kind of tries to portray she's looking for love, she's looking for a father figure because of her, you know, childhood troubles and everything there. But the core of the issue, again, in my opinion, the core of the issue is she's looking for safety. But it's yeah. clear that like it's just it's our media and especially in that time that equates male affection with safety which is so so ridiculously incorrect as we know and it's like so i think that's another problem with this film is like because the 50s and the golden age of hollywood equated male affection with safety and because the filmmakers of this film blonde continue that they're only taking it at that one level do you see? Like, they're only saying, like, oh, yeah. she's looking for a dad. She's looking for a daddy. Instead of being, like, she's looking for this because she needs this. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I I think that that theme is also, also seems to have been true for the real Meryl Monroe, right? Like, she had a very traumatic childhood, um, and she had substance abuse issues. She had mental health issues. That's all true. And... I think a lot of it came from a lack of a support system and a lack of feeling safe. And I agree with you. And I think that that the biggest miss on this movie is filling in those gaps and making it a more fully realized vision of what that means and why she craved those things in her life. And like, you know, why do women engage in relationships that are abusive? It's often because of a safety issue, right? And because of security and because they don't have anywhere else to go. Or because society has told them that that's just what they need to deal with. And particularly back in the 1950s, it you know, like, being with Joe DiMaggio is the cream of the crop. He was one of the biggest celebrities and athletes in the entire world. Why would she question if he was abusive to her or not? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I, you know, the media and society teaches women to engage in unsafe situations because that's what they're told to do. And this movie just fully misses that, right? Yeah. <laughs> A hundred percent. Even even the financial aspect of that, where going back to uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women did a really great job about talking about that. There's that very infamous monologue Florence Pugh has where she's talking about like, for me, marriage can't be about love. I have to have this financial aspect because as a woman, I will never fully have that complete safety net without having you know, like a, a financially secure husband kind of thing. And that's that's also sort right. of an aspect of the the Norma Jean story that gets kind of lost in this. They do have moments. Yes. They do have moments where they talk about, um, or not even, like very, very briefly, they touch on the fact that like back in the day, she did some of that. She did some of the nude photography because she felt sort of desperate yes. to have a have more financial safety because she was broke as fuck they very vaguely touch on it but again another thesis statement of this whole discussion we're having they just they missed the point and they kept it so one-dimensional this film was bad right and again it's like marilyn monroe has been documented to have more agency than that like yes she the like the the famous playboy cover um, I believe the history of that was, like, she did not know that that was going to be a Playboy cover. She 
didn't fully understand how those photos were going to be utilized mm-hmm. and wasn't super happy about that. But she also voluntarily posed nude later in her career. There's those really famous, which I think is also recreated in the movie, the really famous one where she has like a sheer pink top on and they're really beautiful photos. It's with the photographer who documented a lot of her life, especially later in her life. Um, in her last film that was incomplete, she um, voluntarily does this really fantastic comedic uh, nude pool scene. Um, you know, mm-hmm. she had more agency over her body than the movie also gives credit for. Um, and it, like you said, it just kind of touches on things and doesn't fully realize the actual truth, which I think would have been much more interesting. A thousand percent. And hopefully we do get to watch the uh, the earlier adaptation film and kind of maybe that does better. Yes. Who knows? Maybe that ad- adapts the, the book in a way that more benefits the true life story than just waters it down more you know i feel like it's going to be like lifetime movie energy but like surprisingly better is kind of what i'm hoping. i hope so it'll be fun yeah so i do yeah. have a trivia question for you and Let's then do we'll it. wrap yep. this out yep. all right this one's kind of an easy one or i don't know we'll see it's a it's a 50 50 shot it's a true or false okay so true or false in order to make her face glow on camera part of marilyn monroe's makeup routine was to put a layer of vaseline on her face I'm going true. Yeah? Yeah. It is true. She used ah. to put a layer of, I think technically it's a different brand, but the same product she used to put like Vaseline on her face, which is wow. kind of crazy because, fun fact, you probably know this, um, cinematographers back in the day would occasionally put Vaseline on a camera lens in order to get like a softer, glowier look to the yep. frame without it being yep. like an out of focus blur. Yep. But I find it so fucking fascinating that you would put Vaseline on your of, face. As as someone who I quite like makeup, and there's a lot of um I I forget the name of Marilyn Monroe's makeup artist, but the this I think it was a guy, did her makeup for a lot of her career. Um I think kind of post Niagara once she got more famous. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those makeup techniques were extremely innovative and are still used particularly in like cinema makeup now. So Marilyn Monroe was super like on the edge of modern makeup. Um, you know, she invented like uh, white eyeliner on the lids of the eyes to make the eyes look bigger. Oh, hell yeah. Um, There's a lot of really specific ways that they did her cat eye wing that um, wasn't quite as popular before her. Draw the um, cat eyes know. sharp enough to kill a man. Thank you. <laughs> yes. T-Swizzle would T-swizzle. be nothing without. Love it. Um, yeah. So interesting point. Interesting trivia yeah. factoid. I didn't know the, the the Vaseline thing, but I wanted to make a couple plugs too. Do as, it. As yeah. a Marilyn Monroe fan. Um First, I watched a really interesting analysis of Blonde on a YouTube channel called Be Kind Rewind, which I think is an awesome YouTube channel. If you have not watched it, it is um, a a lovely lady who makes uh, videos specifically about the Golden Age of Hollywood, but telling women's stories in the Golden Age of Hollywood. And it's a great great channel, and I really liked her analysis of Blonde. Um, She asked some really interesting questions about uh, the why of this movie. So watch that if you want to hear... uh, a really intelligent takedown of that movie. Um, Hell yeah. <laughs> and then additionally, as a Marilyn Monroe fan, watch Some Like It Hot. It's such a good movie. It's still funny today. Um, she's not the main character in the movie, but she's just fabulous in it. And uh, that's the scene in Blonde where she like scratches her face and has a bit of a breakdown on oh, set. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which mm-hmm. was uh, true. She was very difficult on set for that movie. Um, I don't think she scratched her own face, but uh, was very difficult on that set. But... I think that movie is still really amazing. It's still really funny. Uh, it still holds up. So I would encourage people to check that out 
if you are not very well-versed in Marilyn Monroe's filmography. And uh, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, uh, or Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, is what that song is from. And that movie is also actually quite good. Hell yeah. I have so much homework to do when it comes to, like, the golden age of Hollywood. I have some of the basics that I've seen and kind of looked into, but, you know, definitely all of what you just listed, never seen. Like, a lot of the Marilyn Monroe stuff, never seen, which is wild. I really need to... There's some bangers. Do my homework there. Niagara's kind of fun, too. Niagara's Niagara's fun. It's not, like, an amazing movie, but it's a fun movie. That's fair. So. It's hard to find, <laughs> not to, like, knock on the golden age of Hollywood even more, but it, it's hard to find a movie from the 1950s that holds up enough to this day and age where you can watch it and, like, feel comfortable, you know? It's yeah, very the 50s rare. as the golden age, probably my least favorite of the decades. 40s has some incredible films, especially from, like, the noir genre mm-hmm. that are better than any mystery movie now in my opinion uh and then obviously the 60s are once you start emerging into more modern filmmaking but uh yeah the 50s maybe has some gaps yeah <laughs> although uh you're never gonna get a musical made as good as the musicals in the 1950s in my opinion. okay but like i i really want to rewatch la la land like i've been really into but, like la, la singing la land in the rain yeah yeah singing in the rain hits but i think part of it too really selfishly because now i've lived in la for like five years or so now it's like sure. now I have enough of the vibes and enough of like the the real life experience living in LA to be like oh my god yeah so relatable so that's probably like why it no hits. I literally love La La Land yeah, so much incredible. I'm not I'm not hating on modern musicals I'm just saying <laughs> but there are We're, so many more yeah simply nothing like a 50s Hollywood musical there's nothing like that's it. true that's true all right well dude as always thank you so much for coming on the podcast yes. Thank you for having me. It's always fun. Oh yeah. And again, we might we'll try and bring you back for like. that earlier adaptation of yes. Blonde. And of course, we'll have so many episodes in the future, but just to like the short-term future. I think that could be our next one. Yes. Let's do it. Hell yeah. All right. Thanks, man. Well, it sounds like that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Movie Theater Butter, a Tilkin Productions podcast, edited by Kevin Matthew Keeling of Take the World. If you have a free moment, we'd really appreciate if you like or follow the podcast from wherever you're listening. It'll really help us grow our audience and be able to continue making episodes for you guys. You can also follow us on Instagram for monthly episode schedules, extra content, and even surprise video episodes. All right, all right, I'm done. See you next episode.